Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for listening into the next episode of Tapping Into the Human, where um, I have a special guest that um, I met several years ago while I was at university, um, and I didn't know what was happening. I was getting really, really anxious. I didn't know how to handle it. And my mom said, you know, I've heard of someone who's really good you could talk to. And uh, I remember being super afraid, not wanting to do it. And at the time, I couldn't even say the word anxiety without getting anxious myself. And then lo and behold, um, I met um, this awesome therapist, Cindy Smolkin, who um, was my therapist for many, many years and put me in a way better place in my life that um, I now have a podcast on addiction and mental health, which is cool because only a couple of years ago, I didn't. I couldn't even say it without getting anxious. So um, not only that, uh, but Cindy was the very first person I really called when I had the idea of starting um, the Albertus Project. Um, and I remember Cindy calling you up and saying, like, I know I want to do something. I don't really know exactly what it is. Like, what are your sort of thoughts? Um, and I remember you telling me, listen, I don't you know, specialize in addiction. But the one thing that I can say is, there needs to be more, you know, compassion, empathy, and support. There's just not enough of recognizing that these people are humans. Um, so tapping into the human and we have all the stuff. Um, and a lot of that was because of my conversation with you and recognizing, well, you don't specialize in this area. Um, what an impact just treating people like humans can have. So that was an introduction, but Cindy, thank you so much for being on. And thank you for having me, Alex, and congratulations on this insanely amazing and powerful endeavor that you're on with the Albertus Project. Thank you. No, I super appreciate it. Um, so obviously, I know you, but I actually don't know your personal sort of story so much, and obviously the listeners don't. So for those of them who don't know who you are, can you explain sort of who you are, what you do, and your background? Absolutely. So I'm a social worker in private practice, and I've been in private practice, I think it's probably about like 17 years now. Wow. And prior to that, um, I've probably always been immersed in working with youth and families. That's probably been my specialty forever. Uh, I worked in Toronto with Children's Aid for a while with youth who uh, were not able to live at home for all sorts of complicated reasons. Some of it addiction actually, wow. who had to live in either group homes or residential care. I've worked at the Toronto District School Board and the various other places. And so right now, my practice uh, specializes very much in parenting, in supporting parents to help them best support their kids and individual work with young people and adults. And like, some of what I do ties in so much into some of the stuff that you're working on. Because if we think of like, Presumably the people you know, what inspired you to even start the Albertus Project, we're talking about all these adults and young adults who struggle with addiction. Right. But all these adults and young adults were once very small humans. They were once babies and toddlers and children and teenagers. And the truth is addiction, addiction is a symptom. Addiction is, I need to rescue myself somehow. Addiction is, I need to numb myself. I need to feel something different than what I'm feeling because there's something behind that curtain that is much bigger than the addiction. And that's where I see, that's where I do a lot of my work in terms of seeing these little humans 
And whether there, you know, whether there's parent-child conflict, whether there's grief or trauma or abuse or mental health issues or ADHD, or I mean, the list goes on and on. But that's where it all starts. And and so, you know, when you think of the adult who suffers with addiction, it's so important to know that there's such a story behind that. And and the importance of understanding that story and being able to be compassionate about that story is the first step towards anyone's healing. You know, when I work with parents or, or kids or youth and either in my direct contact with them or in my coaching of parents in, in working and parenting their children, my entry point is always understand them through the lens of which they're experiencing their life. Understand. Right. Which is difficult. It's so hard because as human beings, we are wired to see behavior, right? We are wired to see action. We are not necessarily wired unless we put effort into it to go behind that and see what might be going on behind the storyline. That's compassion. That's and compassion. You know, it's so interesting, like Jennifer Kalari, who, who founded this idea of connected parenting and all the tenants in it, she will often say, when we have babies, barring, you know, postpartum depression or, or some real life strife, mm -hmm. we are compassionate automatically. It's very rare that your baby wakes up from a nap crying and we reach for our baby and say, well, what are you crying for? Like, get over it. Yeah, yeah the sun is bright, but like, <laughs> like, come on, suck it up. Who would ever say that to a baby? Right. With a baby, we pick them up. I'm like, honey, you're crying. Come here. I love you. We reassure. We validate. And yet it's like the minute a human develops language, we start talking and logicalizing and we stop. And so if you think of a sensitive human who might be going through a hard time, for them to not experience compassion is going to leave them in a very injured place. And then the more injured they get, of course, they're going to seek out other ways to try to make them feel better. And so often that's where addiction comes in. It starts off as, let me try to make myself feel better somehow escape right. or hurt myself because that's what I think I deserve. And then the chemical addiction happens. That's that's just chemistry, really. Yeah. So that's kind of like a long answer to who I am and where I'm yeah, at. Yeah, right no, no, no. That that's great. That's great. And and I love it too because I always it always makes me think, right? Like when I started out trying to understand this. Um, it was very difficult for me um, to have compassion. I had compassion for Reed because I I knew Reed and I loved Reed. Yet my opinion was very different of, of people dealing with addiction than I think of now, right? Because you're you're sort of wired at a very young age to think punitive action is the way that it needs to go, and these people are choosing this route, and oh, it's all on them. Um, and then you realize that there's a story, and these are people who are dealing with such significant, whatever it is, mental health issues, or as you said, ADHD, like these people are actually just trying to feel normal, right? The highs mm -hmm. is a different thing, but um, it's been a, a really interesting learning journey realizing, and, and it's really important. This is what I'm trying to do, educate people that there's a story behind all this. All these people are human. You may not choose to seek substances and that's you, great, but other people have a story and they're just trying to feel normal. Um, yeah. And I think that that's a difficult thing to, understand and wrap your head around. Um, I also think it's really interesting too that you work with parents because they're an equal part of the equation, right? There's a lot of times where, you know, children are having mental health issues in part that's worsened by a parent or whatever that is. So 
what what exactly what is the work that you do with parents is it you know their child is suffering and you're advising them how to support them with mental health like what exactly does that look like and what is typically your advice to these parents trying to understand something that they just they don't understand for sure it's such a good question okay so just to make a quick comment before i answer the question i think people sometimes get confused that compassion means permissive mm. but compassion does not preclude personal accountability Right. Compassion does not preclude taking real steps for someone to own their own healing. Mm -hmm. But I think people don't think that way. I think people think that if I'm compassionate and empathic to this human yeah. being, I'm essentially giving my permission. And I'm my... agreeing with what they're doing. Exactly. Right. And I think, and I think that's such a misconception and it is completely not true. Well, so now sure. to answer your question. So if you think of like, what is the general root of how parents come to me? It 99% comes where I get an email or a phone call with a list of all the problems that their child has. Okay. My child is doing X, Y, and Z. My child suffers this way. My child is behaving this way. And okay. you could like feel the parents' frustration and worry. Because yeah. every parent wants their kid to be okay. And so I think my first place with families, with parents who I work with, is first of all, to help give them a lens through which to see their kids. It is not all about being angry at them for their behavior. Mm. And that is also not all about the parent to feel so overridden by anxious, by anxiety that their kid is like somehow a disaster. Yeah. Because neither of those positions help kids. Right. And so the next piece is to teach parents, how do you actually be compassionate? Like what is compassionate language and how, because the truth is for any human, never mind a child. I mean, children are inherently way more sensitive than adults. They're just because they don't have the neurological equipment to kind of understand the world the way we do and to navigate and regulate all their feelings. So I teach parents as a first step how to be compassionate with their kids. So when their kids are falling apart or having a meltdown or being rude or being disrespectful to first be able to say, I, I, you're having a really rough time. This is really hard for you. And then I help parents learn how to do their parenting job. You know, parents, like, you can't be permissive. There have to be limits. That's so important for kids and it brings them safety. But how to do it in a an appropriate way and a reasonable it's way? Balance. It's tough. It's a balance. It is a hundred percent a balance. And one thing I'll tell you is, in my practice, for the most part, most of the parents I work with do not need a lot of help with knowing what are appropriate limits and how to set them. They need tweaking because parents mm. sometimes have an inclination to be a little bit too rigid. Yeah. But the parents I work with need much more help finding a way to be compassionate. That's so interesting. You know, it's, and I think that that's, and as I've been learning so much about, you know, mental health and addiction and everything, a lot of it comes down to just your ability to understand, not agree, but kind of just be there. And, you know, I think about it too. And I think about my own mental health journey and anxiety, like my mom came to my first appointment with you mm -hmm. and I couldn't have gone to that appointment without her. I just mm -hmm. needed her there with me to support me and like know everything is going to be okay and have that safe space. So I can only imagine um, how difficult it is for kids or whoever, they don't have that support system and feel as you were saying, safe and comforted. And the other question I always wanted to ask, um, sort of a little bit of a different topic was, how do you not bring this stuff home with you? Because I think about it, right? Well, I've always, Jar my sister Jarrett too, uh, we've been the type of friends who everyone loads all their baggage and, the, you know, the emotions and we we're very sensitive. We take it home with us. 
how do you separate the the work from your home life? Is there ever a time where you're really thinking about a client or like, how, how do you separate that? Because I think that's important for your own mental health. Such a good question. Okay. So first of all, I'm human. So there are some circumstances or some things that happen or some moments where I don't like my workday is done and I'm ruminating or worrying. Um, and when those moments happen, I'll actually allow them to happen because I'm a human being and I care about the people I work with. So sometimes it does happen. But I suppose if it happened every single day, I would find it hard to do this work. And so yeah. I think for me, I try to always remind myself, no matter what my clients are going through, no matter how hard it is, I trust that they're resilient. I trust that they're going to be okay. And so that actually affords me the possibility to let it go, to have faith in them. I think I also have my own personal life, which serves to be very distracting, right? I'm raising my own children. I have a partner. And so that is distracting, uh, fills me up, drives me crazy. It does all those things. So it allow it forces me to have to get out of my work brain a little bit. Yeah. I also think that some of it comes with experience. Like if I think back 25 years ago, I probably bought, brought way more home. Mm -hmm. But over time, I think you learn to like, as a therapist, for sure, you learn, you know, how to lean on colleagues if you have them, how to, you know, journal or, or use self-care to have moments to be able to separate yourself from your yeah. work so that you like can move on. Try to figure out. because Absolutely. I, I still, I, I, I have so much, I give so much credit to nurses and doctors and therapists. Like I, I think you have to be a very special type of person and have a specific type of demeanor to be able to be compassionate, to be able to support, but at the same time, kind of to do your best to leave it at home in the nine to five. And then, you know, when it's home life, be able to work on that. hundred percent. And I'm sure my particular path of interest, which, you know, families and kids, I'm sure that I chose that not just because I'm so interested and passionate about it, but also because it fits in what I am absolutely able to handle. I could promise you as a social worker, there's a thousand other fields of interest I could have gone into, but I also had a very good sense when I was choosing my direction as to what was beyond me. You know, like yeah. working as a therapist or as a social worker on a pediatric oncology unit, I don't mm -hmm. think I'd be able to do it. And so it's also knowing and understanding what you can and what you cannot handle and choosing accordingly. And that was going to be my next question. I've never asked you what made you want to choose this as a career path, social work, and then specifically parents and children. Like, where did that passion come from? Did you know from an early age, this is the sort of stuff you want to do, or you wanted to do something completely different and this was the path that you chose? It's, it's, it's like the universe is so weird. It's so funny that you're asking me this question. Cause on Saturday I went to my hairdresser and we got onto this whole topic about books. Okay. Okay. I remember when I was a kid, well, I'm still an avid reader, but when I was a kid, eight, nine, 10, I always had a book by my bedside and it's crazy. The theme of those books, children with autism, mm. a youth with eating disorder, uh, a very, like from the time I was young, there was something that just grabbed my soul about young people and their struggles and families. It just was an interest. And I'll tell you, when I was getting as an older teenager and starting to think about my future, my parents, I'd come down to the kitchen table and there'd be like little cutouts of like job descriptions, dental hygienist. And like, because they had this idea of like, they wanted me to have a pr profession that would kind of financially keep me stable and all that. And I would look at them and I was like, nope, <laughs> that's not a match. And I, I was, 
I think I was very lucky because I don't think that many young people necessarily can have so much clarity. I had clarity from the t as long as I could remember. I loved kids. I love people with special needs. I just, I love their stories. So I knew all along. I, I feel That's so amazing. blessed and lucky that like my passion drove me from the time I was little until where I'm at. And I've been able to have a career in that. I'm so grateful. Yeah, no, that's, that is amazing. And I was going to say, I mean, you know, my story, that's very much the same. I always knew living in Toronto, Canada, I wanted to work in national security and work for the government. And I now live in DC and get to do that sort of stuff. So it's, it's so purposeful and meaningful. And you, I'm sure you feel grateful to be able to kind of find your calling and it gives you so much purpose. That's certainly how I feel. Yeah. And, it's, and so, you know, if you think about people who struggle with addiction, all the people who struggle with addiction want to have purpose, right? They want to feel happy and healthy and they want to have purpose. Something along the way of their path got in the way of that. And it wasn't addiction. It didn't start off being addiction. And so just to like loop it all back together, you and I might be so lucky in terms of like the stars aligned, mm -hmm. our passion are aligned. But I think we're, I don't think, I think we're the rarity. Like, I don't think I it always works that way. Um, I agree. Life can be really hard. There's so many barriers. I'm mean, looking at us in COVID right now. Yeah. Like, I know you're in the States and here I am in Toronto. Like, things are a little bit different. But, like, the topsy-turviness of life and, and, and it's not a deficit of someone if they find things like this hard to manage. It's not a deficit. It's not a failure. It's not an incompetency. It's a sensitivity that they have. It's not a choice. No one, no one grows up saying, I hope that my life is so difficult so that I can eventually become an addict. Exactly. Like no one wakes up and chooses to be an addict. They wake yeah. will wake up one day and choose to use a substance or whatever it may be, but it and then it turns into dependence. And then there's a whole chemical thing and it's the brain. But I I think that's why education is so important because then once you start realizing you can piece the story together and be like, okay, there's a, there's a person, there's a story, there's a reason behind this. And I think, what is your sort of thoughts on, I, I'm continuing to see, you know, I'm a part of all these great Facebook groups about people struggling with addiction and mental health issues, but they don't feel comfortable coming forward to friends and family and, and getting the help that they need. I think that that is a lot to do with stigma. What is sor sort of your opinion, what you're seeing? Have you ever helped clients be able to, you know, either, you know, talk to their parents about what they're dealing with? Like, that's a hard conversation, especially if you don't have family members who understand that. Like, what is your advice for those sort of kids or, or teenagers? So it's a very good question, you know, whether it's addiction, sexuality, mm -hmm. um, mental health, anything. And needless to say, like I have tons of young people who I work with who carry a lot of this burden completely alone. So my advice is often like multifold because the reality is I personally or professionally would never want to set up one of my clients to support them and help them to be able to come forward with whatever they're struggling with. If there's a 99.9% .9 chance that they're going to be met with hostility and judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then that would be me essentially completely sabotaging someone and making them more fragile than they already are. Right. So there are some situations where I help young people tolerate the fact that they might not be able to share this information and to find other places where they can. Okay. 
but that's a small percentage. Okay. Most of my clients, when they come to feel safe enough with me to disclose, like even with me, it can be hard for a client to get comfortable yeah. enough to disclose for fear of judgment. Right. Then we will work together on help. I will help a client find the language. I will help a client be able to express their vulnerability because the other thing is, if I don't express what I need, I'm going to have a hard time getting what I want and what I need. If I express my struggle provocatively or aggressively, I'm going to have a hard time getting what I need. So it's yeah. about helping clients develop the language to be able to more candidly say I'm hurting as opposed to saying you guys are pissing me off. Right. Um, Which because, is a lot easier to do than figuring out the language. That's the tough inner work you got to do. And that's why yeah. it's awesome to be able to have you to sort of help guide and, and say, okay, well, let's take a step back. You might want to message it this way. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, there have been many scenarios where a client that I'm working with gets to a place of feeling comfortable enough that they would like, if we're talking about parents, they would like their parents to come into a session and we do it mm -hmm. all together. And, and that way I'm there to ensure safety, right? To make yeah. sure that the parents are handling it well and hearing it well and teaching the parents how to respond and helping the client. And so it's a big process to battle through stigma is, and, 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 and anxiety around judgment. That's what most people worry most about is how am I going to be received or perceived by the people outside of me? I want so much to be approved of. I don't want to feel like a disappointment, like I failed them. They probably have tried so hard. I want so much for them to yeah. love me and accept me. And it's hard. It's hard no, to it, feel. It makes me, it makes me really sad. And, and that's what I know all these organizations, including the Albertus Project, is trying to do. And I think, you know, I've always said it too. I know a lot of people are like, oh, like you've been to therapy, like you're so honest about it. Like that's great. Um, and part of the reason why is because I didn't have anyone at the time. I now do, but I didn't have friends at the time who spoke to therapists or even if they did, were open about it. And mm -hmm. um, if if you're comfortable enough, I suggest everyone to be as open as they can. And, and I've suggested to my friends, anyone could use a therapist. Like if you, you just got to find your person, like, you know, you were mine for me. And I just think being able to really work on yourself and it doesn't always have to be this big, like, oh, I have a specific thing I need to work on. I, I think there's those instances too, but I recommend speaking to a therapist for absolutely anyone because I just think it's so important for your inner work and to be able to make you kind of feel at peace. And I've developed so many skills from talking to you um, that I never would have, and I never would have been in a better place without speaking to someone. Um, but it's it's challenging, right? Like it's not easy to be vulnerable. And you know, as I said, I had to have my mom in that conversation and. Um, I just, I highly encourage anyone who can speak about it or who is debating about going to therapy, this is your sign to do it. I would totally agree. And I think to echo what you just said, because it really is important, you have to feel a rapport with your therapist. Right. So if you decide to, if you find a courage or a bravery to decide you want to speak with someone and you finally meet with someone and something doesn't feel right, I mean, give it a chance. But if something ultimately doesn't feel right, you're not locked in. You yes. are allowed to find someone who you feel more safe with because that has to be important. But Alex, if money were no issue, if there was enough therapists to go around, God, if everyone can have a therapist, a can soft you place to land, I can't. The world, the I, world would be such a better place. Oh my would, God. Like, some of the people I've met, I'm like, like, obviously I don't say this. I'm like, 
thinking in my head, they would just so benefit from speaking to someone, you know, it's just, you know, and that's offensive to a lot of people. I took offense when my mom's like, I think you should speak to someone. I'm like, how dare you? Nothing's wrong. You know, there, there's a, there's a connotation of speaking to someone is very, I get it. Right. But we got to flip that on its head. But um, no, I was going to say, Cindy, I, I so appreciate your time. I mean, you've been a very special, important part of my life, um, both, you know, personally and for the Albertus Project and helping to inspire and, and think of everything. So I just want to thank you so much for everything that you do for the Toronto community and all your clients, but specifically for me. So thank you. It's such a pleasure. And thank you so much. I feel so honored to participate in this with you. Uh, I'm sure Reed is looking down now and having a little laugh. Yeah. And, and feeling really proud of you and really happy for us to be connecting Agreed. and continued luck, continue spreading all these amazing good messages that you are. And um, it's been lovely to talk to you, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.